What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. We do not stop at training your nutrition. We go much deeper, and we cover all things personal development. I am Cody Boom Boom McBroom. I am your host, and I am your coach through your speakers here to help you develop into the best version of yourself. Three quick announcements. Number one, if you are new to the show, hit the subscribe button. We drop three episodes a week, all for free, and I want to make sure you are updated with the latest and greatest content. Number two, scroll down into the description of this episode. I left the top four ranked episodes by the listeners. going to be training FAQ, nutrition FAQ, nutritional periodization, and my personal journey into fitness and coaching. And last but not least, make sure you check out my free ebook, The Nutrition Hierarchy. It is another link in the description. I break down everything you need to know and provide a ton of great resources, not only of my own, but of other great industry leaders so that you can learn as much as possible about how to master your diet for the long run. That's completely free, all three of those things in the show notes, all of them. Check them out. Today's episode is a Q&A. It is Friday. I love Q&As. Um, and today we got into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight questions that are very, very applicable. I feel like this is the most practical podcast I've done in a long time. All of these questions are very pr- applicable to everybody listening, no matter if you want to build muscle, lose weight, maintain, you're a coach, you're a client, it doesn't matter. I promise these are going to be very fitness and nutrition oriented, and they're going to be very detailed to the practical application of results. All right, guys, if you love this show, if you want to help me grow this show, please do me a quick favor. Head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating review, and make sure you take a screenshot of this episode, post it on Instagram story, and tag me at Cody Boom Boom because I want to thank you for listening, and I want to reshare it on my story. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing episode full of questions. It's the Q&A. All right, we're going to jump right into these questions. The first question Really good question. Um, Very short, very simple, very blunt, very to the point. However, I do think it is a very good question. Coach Chronic, my man, testing MRV without prior history of volume in training. So I tried to cover this in my story. Um, This is a story question because I do those IG live or not live IG story Q&A's. But I even said, I was like, I got to bring this onto the podcast because I think it's just too deep of a question to cover in a story. But um, to set the stage, first of all, MRV, uh, term coined by Mike Israel, maximum recoverable volume. So if we actually, I'm going to pull this up because I think it's it's really good information. I think I've cited and linked this in the podcast uh, more than one time. Quite a few times, um, but I think it's it's really important for a lot of people to know this. Even if even if you're Gen Pop, even if you don't care about maximum muscle growth, even if you are looking for fat loss, like these things are important because it allows you to really see into your training. And everybody's individual, um, so it's it's very hard for even me as somebody who owns a membership site and I create programs for people. Shout out to the Boom Boom Elite members. I base that off of general volume landmark recommendations, right? So I base that off of what I know um, from these landmarks I'm about to go over, but then also what I see with clients, what is on average. And even those vary program to program. Not everything is exactly the same. So it's up to an individual to track their volume and then uh, kind of build that over time. Um, So we have MV, maintenance volume. This is the amount of volume, number of sets. So think of volume as sets per week. So sets per muscle group per week. So whenever we're talking about tracking volume in general, we need to understand that we're looking at the sets done per muscle group per week. So if I am looking to figure out how much volume I need in any of these categories, I look at 
my chest is getting this much volume per week. My lats are getting this much volume per week. My rhomboids are getting this much volume per week. Traps this much per week. Biceps this much per week. Some are direct, some are indirect. And what I mean by that is your chest is basically directly hit with flies and presses, right? We know that. Is it arguably getting worked in other movements? Yeah, I mean, like your upper chest is going to work slightly in overhead press, especially depending on your limb length and joint, uh, personal joint angles and how your body biomechanically moves. But it's not really getting hit enough to count the volume inside of overhead press. Um, your chest even works, your pecs work during a lat pull down, but not significantly enough to worry about tracking the volume. However, your biceps get indirectly hit every time you do a pull down or a row. That is significant. Um, it's not a direct stimulus to the bicep, but it's significant enough to consider it as an indirect set towards your bicep. So you want to consider it inside of that volume um, a little bit. Now, MV is maintenance volume. This is the amount of training that allows you to maintain your current level of muscular size. Cool. MEV, minimum effective volume. This is the amount of training that actually grows your muscles. Anything below this amount is uh, then at best... Uh, so if you're training to make gains, you had better make sure to be above your MEV. So minimum effective volume. So that's words from Renaissance Periodization right there. But basically MEV is the minimum amount. This is the, you at least need this amount to be effective in your training. Maximum adaptive volume. This is the range of volumes in which you make your best gains. So if we think about maximum adaptive volume, this is the maximum amount of volume that we can handle and still adapt from. So if we consider um, actually truly adapting from what we do, we need to create stress. We need to push our body. We need to train pretty damn hard, but we also need to be able to recover from it so that we can adapt. After that, we get to MRV, maximum recoverable volume. MRV is literally, your body can only handle so much. So this is like basically the point of no return. This is like the last little bit. I think everybody can, like, this is not a good place to be, but it's, not, it's also not a bad place to be because it is the maximum amount of volume we can recover from, which means that we should push the limits to get to this point in certain phases. Um, you don't want to push this point when you're hormonally stressed. You don't want to push this point when you are in a deficit. You don't want to push this point when you are emotionally, mentally, or physically uh, stressed whatsoever, right? If your body is in a good place for growth, you're at maintenance or s surplus calories, you don't have a lot of stress in your life, you're not dieting, you, you don't have any emotional issues going on, push to maximum recoverable volume, push up your volume as high as you can, and still recover from to the point where you're not getting uh, overtraining syndrome, right? which is very hard to do, but you also don't want to permanently overreach. So what that means is let's say like in a three to four month block, you might take two to three months to build your volume up to a maximum recoverable volume. And then at that point, you stay there for four to six weeks, not even maybe, maybe just four weeks, three to four weeks of just maximum recoverable volume, meaning you're push and it's hard. And then after that, you bring back down with one week deload and then going right into another phase of a low volume. So now we've gone from pushing volume higher and higher and higher until we reach our maximum recoverable amount. Then we deload and then we bring volume down to one of two things, either A, minimum effective. So now we're going to spend two to three more weeks at minimum effective. So it's, it's effective, but it's not too hard that our body 
is stressing to recover. And then we're going to build into maximum adaptive, which is the ideal place to be. We're going to stay there for a, quite a while. This is where the majority of your training should stay. And then we finally peak in the maximum recoverable volume again. So you can periodize these things for pure muscle growth. You can also shift into a low volume phase after a maximum recoverable volume and just focus on strength. And what that's going to do is your volume is going to be pretty low, probably in the minimum effective volume, maybe even maintenance volume, but your intensity, so the loads you're using is really high. So you're seriously pushing the strength phase, the power phase, the literal, the neurological sense of things for a good four-week block, two four-week blocks maybe even. And what that's going to do is, A, it's going to build your strength so that when you come back to the high volume training for your muscle growth, it's going to allow you to handle more weight for the volume that you're lifting. But then also it's going to, uh, this isn't documented studies, but Dr. Mike Isratil talks about this a lot. Um, Steve Hall talks about this a lot. Jared Feather talks about this a lot. There's some people that don't talk about this, but they just implement it naturally in their training. And I think it, it there's merit to it. I think it would work really well. But when you bring yourself into the strength phase, not only are you building strength to get better at the volume phase, but you're also desensitizing yourself to those high volumes. So when you go back to the high volumes and you're doing sets of 10, 12, 15, 20 rep sets, your body responds really well to it. You can only do anything for so long before your body adapts too much and then it becomes not as beneficial. So that's kind of the overview on volume landmarks. What I would also say um, is check out uh, the videos. I'm going to link them in the show notes. Every Monday podcast video, I'm breaking these things down. This week we talked about volume intensity and frequency. So you didn't listen. If you didn't listen to episode uh, the episode on Monday, part two of the individual training design series, definitely go check that out because all I talked about is volume. And I actually literally answer this exact question. But the question on testing MRV without prior history of volume and training, you have to start by tracking. So the first step in anything, it's just like calories, right? If somebody comes on board and they're like, hey, I want to lose fat or hey, I want to build muscle. Hey, I want to improve my performance. I need your help with nutrition. The first thing I'm going to say is cool, track for five days. Why? Because I need to assess where you're currently at. As cheesy as it sounds, it's like a GPS. I can't get you where you want to be if I don't know where you're at currently. So first we assess where you're currently at, and then after that I can determine what needs to change in order to get you where you want to be. So if you currently track your MRV, so I'll use myself as a good example. I had surgery, uh, meaning my MRV as a quantitative number dropped significantly. I took, uh, and I'll, I'll share a link in the show notes. Oh, no, I can't because it's on my story. But I posted a picture on my story um, of a physique update. And I'm finally starting to feel better, feeling a little bit more full, a little bit bigger, a little bit leaner. Um, and it took a while, but I was injured at the beginning of February. So I spent all of February pre-surgery injured. February 26th, I think it was, 23rd or 26th, had surgery. Couldn't train my legs for three full months. Couldn't train my upper body for a month. So I was out of the gym for a month, and then for two months, I did like three days a week of upper body training, very light, only seated because I couldn't really do much. After that, I could start standing and doing some exercises, but nothing on my legs for another month. So like three or four months of no leg training. Um, and now I've spent the last month, month and a half, training my legs again, maybe two months. I, I, I would have to look at the calendar, but maybe one to two months, at least one at the most two months of training my legs again um, with minimum volumes. But what I did is I created a program for myself um, and I started, basically I, I created a program that was upper and lower and I only did the upper body days until I was able to do the lower body days. Once I could start doing the lower body, lower body days, I started doing that. And 
I just assessed my biofeedback. I knew I was starting from scratch. So for me as an intuitive coach, because I've been doing this a long time, I didn't count volume at first. I just did what I thought my body would respond best to. It wasn't super high volume. It wasn't super low volume. It was right in the middle and it was just focused on movement patterns. I was like, okay, let me just hit all the fundamental movements. I'm talking push, pull, overhead, horizontal, vertical, hip hinge, knee dominant, like very basic stuff. And then let me add a little bit of like basic stuff, like lateral raises, curls, but like the type of movements in those patterns that really work well with my body. So not the quote unquote best lateral delt builder, but the best lateral belt delt builder for me. What allows me to truly feel my lateral delts? What allows me to get a pump? What allows me to find the mind muscle connection? What allows me to go through those movements without joint pain? So I really focus on that. So I have my movements. Some of them I repeat two to three times a week and it's high frequency um, and I'm just focusing on that. After a full month of doing that and my body responding really well, I counted all my sets. So this is where you are probably at if you're listening to this. I don't track volume. How do I test this? Take your program and this is why if you're not following a program, step one is creating a program, buying a program, joining the elite, doing something to get you on point with actually following a program take your program and count your sets per muscle group per week. That's how you test. So for me, I'm like, okay, I've been following this program for four weeks. I am in a deficit, but I'm recovering really well. I'm progressing in the gym and I don't feel run down. What that tells me is at most, I'm actually at maintenance volume. I'm not pushing it because even at minimum effective volume, I should be seeing, actually, I lie. I would be at minimum effective volume. I wasn't at maintenance volume because I was recomping. I was building some muscle in this fat loss phase, um, which is damn near impossible for somebody like me being an advanced lifter. However, I just went through surgery, so that's a lot of inactivity, so it is possible. But I was probably at my minimum effective. So I wasn't making huge strides and gains, but I was making some gains. I was getting a little bit sore here and there, but not much. Um, and even though soreness isn't documented as a way to describe success, I would argue that it's a good proxy to know that you're creating muscle damage. And if you're creating muscle damage, you're forcing adaptations. If you're forcing adaptations, you're forcing results. So I do think muscle soreness temporarily, so like one to three days at most, is a good thing. Now, I wasn't getting a ton of that. So what I did is I tracked all of my sets. I looked at everything I was doing and I saw where I was at. For me, everything was in between 15 to 18 sets. Naturally, that's like my minimum effective. It's not super high volume whatsoever, but I really prioritize quality of movement and finding a mind-muscle connection so I don't have any junk volume in my training. And I think that's a big issue with a lot of people looking at high volume training programs. They see high volumes and they have shitty form and they are not keeping their volume as effective volume. Actually, 3DMJ, Brad Loomis, coach, um, he just wrote a really good article on this um, and used Jeff Alberts as an example. The dude is... Oh, oak he's jacked he's crushing it and he's winning shows he's a pro he doesn't do high volumes he does very low volumes actually but his quality of movements and his mind muscle connection is really really good so his volume is effective volume a lot of people who shoot for high volumes actually have a lot of junk volume so i would recommend instead of taking time to do more sets take time to perfect a movement before you add sets so that's what i did for a month I, I stayed at the minimum effective volume. So I stayed at what is the minimum amount of volume I can use in order to gain any type of success or progress with my muscles. And then from there, I just perfected my form for a full month. Now I came back, looked at my sets. I'm in between 15 to 18 on everything. And I looked at a couple body parts that I really need to increase. 
right now I'm not going to specialize in anything because the reality is I'm in a deficit. So I didn't increase volume on anything upper body because I didn't lose a ton of size there, but I lost size in my legs because I went three months without training them. So I brought my volume on my legs all the way up to 18 to 20 sets per week. So it is high volume there. So now what I would say is as a whole, I'm probably in the maximum adaptive volume. So I'm in a place as a whole to bring my volume to a place where I can adapt to. But I would say like my upper body is at maintenance volume. My lower body is at maximum adaptive volume. The reason I'm explaining it this way is because as soon as I'm out of a deficit, so after this photo shoot, I'm going to reverse diet, bring myself up to maintenance. I'm going to move all of my body into maximum adaptive volume. Because right now I'd say just my quads really, and maybe hamstrings, but mainly quads are in maximum adaptive volume. I'm pushing the volume to regain what I lost because my legs lost like two and a half inches. But the rest of my body is at maintenance volume because I'm in a diet. If I brought all of my body parts up to maximum adaptive volume, it would be probably more than my maximum recoverable volume. And if you're following me correctly, you understand that my MAV, my maximum adaptive volume, is completely different than it is when I'm in a diet. So my maximum recoverable volume is a lot lower when I'm in a diet. When I'm in a diet, I'm in a stress position, I'm in a deficit, and I do not have the capabilities to recover from as much volume as I would if I was at maintenance or at a surplus. This is a long-winded answer, but the reason I'm prefacing it this way and I want you guys to understand what I'm talking about here is because as you go through diet phases, your volume should decrease and increase. You should match your volume to your diet. So if you are bringing calories up in a reverse, you should bring your volume up with it. If you're in maintenance, you should bring your volume up. If you're in a surplus, bring your volume up to what you can recover from and still adapt to. Every once in a while, throw in an MRV phase for two to four weeks where you overreach. You purposely push volume so high that it's hard to recover from and you have to deload afterwards to have a super compensation effect to where your body starts adapting to what you have already done in that MRV phase, which has been shown by studies. That does happen. Bring your volume up too high, your body has to compensate by almost overreaching, not seeing any gains. Then you deload and pull way back and your body will kind of have the fruits of its labor afterwards. Um, so that's how I would approach it, man. Look at your current training, count your volume, uh, as far as like muscle group, uh, sets per muscle per week. Um, and then go from there and you can see where it is. And then, sp so like find your, your current volume, assess that, write it all out, stick with that for four weeks while perfecting your reps so that you take any type of junk volume. So any junk reps, reps that aren't truly connected to the muscle and they're like, if you're doing a curl and you're doing a shrug and hyperextending your back to get the bar up, perfect that curl first. So your volume is truly in the biceps. So you can quantify every set that you're counting in your volume as truly for that muscle group. Once you spend four weeks doing that, I think at that point, you can begin to add volume or shift between MAV to MRV. But you want to stay in MAV for 80% of your, your training. Um, you'll spend 10% of your training in MRV, and then you'll spend 10% of your training at maintenance volume, trying to bring it down or minimum effective, bring it down so you can actually recover from the high volumes. Um, and that's how I would go about it, man. I think that's a really good approach. I hope like my example helped you guys see where I'm coming from um, and how I bring, basically, if I didn't have my surgery, I'd be at maintenance volume 24-7 because I'm in a diet. I think when you're in a deficit, keeping your body at maintenance volume is smarter because, and this is why it's important for even if you're a fat loss client, like, I think it's important to consider your training, consider your volume because, um, and when a client has this kind of data to give me, it makes my job so much easier because I can say, like, hey, we're going into a deficit. I want you to bring yourself down to maintenance volume. 
Um, if you don't know what that is, maybe just bring your, your sets down one set per muscle group per week um, and see how you feel. But ideally, we're trying to chase optimal recovery during a diet so your body can work on fat loss instead of trying to work on the stress that is being placed on it. Um, and you're not going to lose a lot of fat if you're constantly in MRV and you're just running yourself in the ground. And I think that's why a lot of CrossFitters have a tough time dieting and losing fat while performing a lot of CrossFit. It's because their body is constantly at MRV. You're pushing it on all cylinders, expecting to lose fat, but your body's too stressed. All right. Carmen Spitzer, can you build muscle while reverse dieting from a hormonal standpoint? I know that you should lower the training impact, but what if training stays the same? Calories go up and the client feels better. Do also more advanced lifters can build muscle. Also, can more advanced lifters build muscle in this scenario, or is it mostly fat gain, water retention, and or hormonal restoration? So I think it really, really depends. Um, this is such an individualized question, unfortunately. Um, I mean, fortunately, I think that's the best way to approach anything. But for you asking the question, I think it's un it's unfortunate because you don't get a straight answer. So um, can you build muscle while reverse dieting from a hormonal standpoint? Yes, you absolutely can. I've seen it a lot of times. I think in most scenarios, you actually absolutely can build muscle in a reverse diet. And it happens from two things. Either A, if you're in a hormonally compromised position, you're probably not going to be able to build much muscle, period. So if you reverse diet and get yourself out of that hormonally compromised position, I think your body's just naturally going to build muscle, assuming you are training properly. You mentioned, I know that you should lower the training impact, but what if your training stays the same, calories go up, and the client feels better? So I would argue that a little bit um, in, in one scenario. So the one scenario is you – there's actually three scenarios. Either A, you're doing too much training, and that's part of what you need to reverse. So in some situations, I look at a client's uh, situation. I'm like, you're dieting too hard, so you have too little calories, and you're training too hard, so your calories out is too much. So we need to reverse both. We need to lower volume, increase calories, and then we have this adaptive effect where your body finally starts recovering, hormones start having less stress placed on them, and therefore your whole body recovers and you start to adapt. You build muscle. Um, another scenario is training is totally fine. You're at a good training level. We don't want to adjust that. You've just been dieting too long, so we need to increase calories. You're a hyper responder, meaning you respond pretty well to the reverse diet, um, and then you build muscle in the process. But we didn't touch training, so we don't need to lower training. Um, we just keep it the same. The only difference is, is we increase calories, and what happens when we increase calories? Basically, you have more fuel, you have more muscle glycogen, your joints feel better, you recover faster, and essentially you end up lifting heavier weights in the gym or doing more reps, which both contribute to more volume. So now that you have more calories, you can handle more volume, which means you burn more calories and stay lean while also lifting more weight and building muscle, um, which I think is funny because this is the reality of hyper responders. Like a lot of people look at, oh, you're a hyper responder to reverse dieting. You just must have like the perfect metabolism. And it's like, well, no, like your body just responded well in the sense that when we gave you food, it did what it's supposed to do. It trained harder, lifted more, lifted longer, built more muscle, and your neat went up. So a lot of people who are hyper responders or have highly adaptive metabolisms, they also have highly adaptive thermogenesis where I eat more calories, I fidget more, I talk more, I blink more, I move more, I chew more, I stand longer, and I just burn more calories throughout the day. Um, those same people usually get lethargic during a diet because their body is really good at regulating its energy levels. Um, still could be considered... Uh, an adaptive thermogenesis or adaptive metabolism, but that's like really what's going on behind the scenes. And then the last scenario is actually when we increase calories, 
Um, let's say the client was just doing a normal amount of training. We increase calories. The client feels way better. I feel confident in raising volume and I do, and they build muscle. So I'm going to link the case study. Um, I got to start writing down all these things. It's so funny. Like I record these podcasts and I like say, I'm going to link this. I'm going to link this. Um, and then I forget completely what I say during this hour long talk of what I'm going to link. Um, but I'm writing it down so I don't forget these links for you guys because I think it's important. Um, I'll link the case study blog I did on Meredith. I took her through a reverse diet. She was doing low volumes in a circuit style fashion and under eating. So we take her from under eating and probably under training from a muscle standpoint. And then we increase volume because I got her on my strength training programs like what I do inside the elite. So we increase volume and we increase calories over time. And she built muscle. So she was in a hormonally compromised place, a metabolically compromised place. So we increased calories. We did less hit cardio and more lifting. So still high intensity. Um, and that was a overall volume increase from a caloric and a training perspective. And she gained muscle. And she was in a hormonally compromised place as well. So I think it can go one of three ways. And that's why it's so individual. We have so many different clients. It's like you're overtraining and that's why you need a reverse diet. You're just under eating and you need a reverse diet. And you either A, can handle more volume as we bring calories up or B, you cannot, but we don't need to because you respond well to it. Um, but in a lot of cases, you can bring volume up um, and you really can build muscle during a reverse diet, especially for somebody who's not seriously hormonally compromised or metabolically compromised. Somebody who, like me, during a reverse diet, I'm increasing my volume with every caloric bump I take because I'm usually not in a hormonally compromised place when I diet. Um, do I get sluggish, testosterone lower, so on and so forth? Yeah, but it's not for a chronic period of time. It's, it's periodized very well. We control it tightly. So for me, as soon as I start bumping calories up, I'm cranking volume up because I want to build muscle and I can guarantee I will. But that's the big key there too, is I think a lot of people don't consider their training. And this is, I was actually just having a conversation with a new client the other day. And I said, one of the biggest mistakes nutrition coaches make is they don't understand training, right? Like all of my nutrition coaches I would trust writing programs and training people. Most of them, actually all of them have trained people. That's the thing is they're trainers too. I have a background in training. I have a background in programming. This allows us to understand what goes with what. What can we do with training? How do we increase volume? What is volume? Like those things are very important and that can actually make a reverse diet better because if we just keep cranking calories up but we never crank up output or we never crank up volume, what are we doing with those extra calories? Right? A lot of people just do it just so they can see a number of carbs go up and they just want to show how many carbs they can get their female clients to eat. And I don't think that's accurate. Like there's no reason to bring people way above maintenance just to say that you have a 120 pound female eating 3000 calories. Okay. But is she comfortable? Is she bloated? Is she gassy? Is she heavier than she was? Yeah. Okay. Well then what the fuck point is that? Right. But if we can bring them up just barely over maintenance and increase volume to MAV, maximum adaptive volume, and let them actually build muscle during a reverse, like that's how crazy results happen from a reverse diet. Um, and then the last question you wrote was uh, Do more advanced lifters, can more advanced lifters build muscle in this scenario, or is it mostly fat gain, water retention, and/or hormonal restoration? Um, I think it is absolutely possible. Like I just mentioned myself can easily do that. Um, there's a few things going on here though. Like I think as somebody like me reverse diets and I add volume, uh, the first 
the vast majority of muscle grown, especially in the earlier stages, is uh, muscle memory. So that's past muscle I lost during the cut or more like past muscle glycogen that was lost during the cut. So your tissues get inflated with glycogen and water. So as I cut, I lose some of that glycogen, I lose some of that water, and then quote-unquote lose muscle tissue. But as soon as I start refeeding and eating more calories and bringing my calories up on a consistent basis, I replenish all those muscle tissues with glycogen and water, and then I quote-unquote build muscle. But really, it's muscle memory. It's just coming back. Um, So the first portion of it is pure water and muscle glycogen. Um, and then after that I can build muscle, but it's going to be very slow. Like for somebody like me, I'm talking like half a pound a month is, is good. Pound a month is pushing it and like really good. Um, any more than that, you're probably gaining some fat. Um, if you're an advanced lifter, um, but yes, a lot of it is hormonal restoration. Um, so, and, and I don't say that in as, as in like, oh, the first one to two months of reverse dieting, you should only gain a pound or two. Like I'm saying you will gain more at the beginning because you're replenishing those old muscle tissues and then you will slow down after a while. So you got to be aggressive and then patient. Um, but I don't think it's, it's not mostly fat gain unless you don't approach it correctly. Or if you're so fucking lean, you need fat. Rhiannon and Healy, I'm currently prepping for a bikini comp in March. My coach is taking it slow so we can maintain muscle and have diet breaks. My maintenance calories are around 2,500, and I spent 12 months in a reverse diet. I'm, I'm at 17% still, have between 5 to 10 kg to lose. My question is, after the show, would I need to do a gradual reverse to maintain a shredded but not stage lean physique, or can I jump back to maintenance calories because it's not a super long prep? March. So where are we at? August. So you still got eight months. <laughs> That's a long prep. Um, so like we have to remember this. If you're taking eight months to prep, that's good. That's smart. I would recommend it, but it isn't. That's not short. That's a long time. Um, and I don't care if you lose a quarter of a pound a week, or if you lose for eight months, or if you lose two pounds a week for twelve weeks. A diet is a diet. So the like this is where I think people get confused. Like, oh, a long prep is better. It's going to be healthier. Well, no, you're still in a deficit. And if your maintenance is twenty five hundred and you bring your calories to twenty two hundred, you're in a deficit. If you bring them to eighteen hundred. You're in a deficit. Now, is a more aggressive or a bigger deficit more harmful? Of course. But a long deficit can be just as bad. So, like, a lot of studies show that no matter how we approach it, you're going to end up getting to the same place, whether it takes you eight months or three months. So I think I think a lot of people get mistaken thinking, oh, I'm doing a really long prep, so I won't have the hormonal adaptations. You will. And that's okay. That's part of getting on stage. It's totally fine. Uh, but just know that it will happen. Now, would you need to do a gradual reverse to maintain a shredded but not stage lean physique? Yes, you would, but I don't know if that would be the smartest thing. So anytime you get really, really lean, like I have a guy, shout out to Brandon, he competed last weekend, won first place at his first ever physique competition and got accepted into the open, jumped onto the open stage, got second place, accepted into the pro qualifier. So now this weekend, we're heading to another stage um, in Canada, and we're going to shoot to get his pro card, so I'm super excited for you. Um, he's fucking crushing it. I already have his reverse diet mapped out in, for him, so he can already see where he's going to be, and the first bump we're taking is pretty significant. Like, I mean, I don't remember off the top of my head, but we're adding a good amount of calories. Like, I, I mean, uh, 
I want to see if I can actually calculate it. I want to say right off the bat, we're adding like 500 calories and reducing two days of cardio, like I think. So like that's a big caloric expenditure difference, right? Two full days of cardio and jumping up calories. He's shredded. Is he going to gain some weight? Yeah, of course, but he's still going to be lean. But like right out the gate, the worst thing you can do is baby a reverse. If you get that lean, if you get truly stage lean, the worst thing you can do is baby a reverse because if you baby a reverse, you're not allowing your body to truly restore its hormones and its metabolic rate. And what they've seen is when you, we used to, back in the day, they call it five gram carb you to death. Um, five gram you to death, I think they used to call it. But basically like when verse diet started happening, we're like, oh, okay, people are getting out of stage. Let's give them five grams of carbs per week. That's such a small amount. Like we'll bring fats up too to the needed point and then just five gram them to death. So if you give them five grams of carbs every single week, it's very slow. It's very gradual. The metabolism almost never has an issue keeping up with that. And over the course of six months, you add a ton of calories. So these people would do that. They would stay super shredded. But now they're at a place where they're eating more calories than they ever had staying that lean. And they still are in a hormonally shitty place. And that's where people started to kind of catch on, look deeper into research and realize like, okay, if we take this approach too slow, it doesn't matter how high your calories get. It's, it's about the body fat levels. So you could go very, very slow and you could build your calories up to fucking 3,000 and be lean and be super happy with how you look, but you still have sleep issues. You still have hormone issues. You still have metabolism issues. You're still super hungry. You're still craving. You don't feel good. That's not worth it. So it's better to do a recovery diet. So look up the recovery diet by 3DMJ. Another thing I'm going to write down to a link. Um, but that is where we basically take... Uh, an aggressive approach. This is what me and Brandon are doing right now. The first two to three weeks, I'm going to make big jumps, right? Jump, 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 get him to a place where he's like, Oh, I feel good. And then I'm gonna let him coast. Um, Jeremiah, I got him super lean for the, uh, photo shoot. We didn't take as aggressive as a recovery diet because he didn't get stage lean, but he got photo shoot lean, which he was still like easily 7% body fat. I mean, like dude was shredded for that. We bumped him up a good amount that first three weeks back to back to back until we got his place to it. As soon as he was like, man, I feel way better. Then I was like, okay, we're going to take it gradual now. Like you basically need to reverse diet as fast as possible to feel better, quote unquote. And then from there, you take a very gradual approach where you can kind of five gram you to death or 10 gram you to death. I, I never five gram anybody to death just to let you guys know. Like I literally, I haven't given somebody a reverse diet adjustment of just five grams in I don't know how long because it's just so insignificant. It's not going to do anything. Um, and it's not about eating as many calories while staying lean. It's about feeling better and trying to stay lean. So I think for you, Rihanna, the best thing to do is, is honestly you're doing it right by taking eight months to get there. I think taking that slow, long approach is good. I think that allows you to have diet breaks. I definitely think you're going to have less more uh, hormonal me metabolic adaptation during this time because you're taking more time because you have room for diet breaks. Um, if you get into a deficit, you get into a deficit, you're still going to have a negative effect to an extent. But giving yourself that much time allows you to make room for air. It allows you to have some freedom. It allows you to have more diet breaks. It allows you to push training a little bit harder to maintain muscle. So I definitely think it's a good approach. Um, but I do think after a show, if you truly get so lean that you do well on stage, just remember that it's not just about calories. It's also about your body fat and body weight levels. When you're at a low body weight or body fat level, that is also hormonally compromising, not just how many calories you're taking in. So if you get super lean, you probably, and if you have a good coach, he's probably going to do this anyway, 
bump the calories up pretty aggressively weeks one through three to get you up to feeling better and then take a very gradual approach, conservative approach after that to stay as lean as you can after you feel better first. So I hope that makes sense. All right. It's pitiful. This is an Instagram name. Hey, man, I'm just letting you guys know. Nobody on Facebook or anything is just titled It's Pitiful. Um, But It's Pitiful said, hey, man, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you, dude. Appreciate it. I'm 21 years old, 6'2", 165 pounds, and looking to build muscle as quick as possible. I'm currently currently aware of several studies that show greater insulin resistance when being in a caloric surplus for more than a few weeks. Would you recommend doing short bulks one to two weeks with a few days of calorie deficit to reset insulin sensitivity and gain muscle faster? Really good question. Um, but no, that's not what I would recommend. So uh, there are several studies that show greater insulin resistance when being in a calorie uh, surplus. But... I think my hypothesis, my theory on this is that if we look at any study like that, we know that we're not going to create insulin resistance in the short term because a short-term calorie surplus is kind of looked at like a diet break. So if we take somebody and we put them in a in a surplus for two to three weeks, it could be considered a diet break. And after that point, we, we are like in a maintainable surplus. So we're actually in a surplus for good after that point. But up until that point, we're kind of just helping our hormones, right? Once we get past that point, we're going to see uh, possible insulin resistance. But that's also when you put yourself in a big surplus. I think a lot of people who are natural lifters struggle with, even unnatural lifters, honestly, you don't need to do this. The difference with unnatural lifters is we can bring them up into a surplus faster and they can gain more weight because they can cut weight easier getting to stage, debatably, uh, most people on gear. But they don't have to, and I don't always think that's the best approach. Like I I really do think most people who do successful stay somewhat lean year-round, and I think that's where you have to go with this. Um, Instead of trying to build muscle as quick as possible, man, commit to some time. You're 21 years old, meaning you don't need to be in a huge surplus. You have high testosterone. You have a young training age, just like milk the gains, dude. Like Don't put yourself in a quote-unquote bulk. Put yourself in a lean gain. Find your maintenance calories. Add like... 150 to 300 calories, like not a ton of calories. Add those via carbs, add some training volume, and just milk the gains. Once you plateau, add another 150 calories, add some volume, milk the gains. Like I think you should follow that steady pace, and I think you will build muscle at a more appreciable rate. For somebody like you, if you haven't been lifting more than a few years, probably a, like one to three pounds a month, and I think you could seriously do that. You know, like uh, maybe one to two is more realistic depending on your training age. If you're brand new, one to three for sure. But do it slow and it'll be pure muscle and you don't have to worry about gaining fat. The reality is, is doing a short bulk for one to two weeks isn't long enough to build muscle. Muscle takes so long to build, it's much, much harder than burning fat is, period. So only spending one to two weeks in a muscle growth phase is a waste of time. It's not going to be significant enough for you to see true appreciable muscle tissue built. It just doesn't happen that quick. So it makes more sense to go, I'm going to spend the next 12 to 16 weeks building muscle um, in a moderate surplus. So I'm not going into a bulk, but I'm just moderately increasing calories and increasing volume so that I can gain some muscle over the next 12 to 16 weeks. And then in between that 12 to 16 mark, at some point, if I have gained a little bit too much fat, I am going to do a mini cut for three to six weeks. That's going to allow me to strip fat, cut aggressively, Increase protein up pretty high, drop volume a little bit lower to maintenance volume, just maintain your muscle, improve insulin sensitivity, probably by lowering carbs for that mini cut, and then uh, and then just get right back to the gain train. Like that's just that's just the best way to do it. Um, yeah, I don't think 
I mean, and if you wanted to keep insulin sensitivity healthy while doing a like long conservative gaining approach, like I'm talking about having one day a week where you fast and drop carbs. So maybe you fast like 18 to 20 hours and you have like one to two meals that are high protein, high fat. And your protein is going to be a little bit lower that day. Fats are going to be pretty moderate and carbs are going to be real low that day. And that's fine. But the fast plus the lower carbs gives you somewhat of an insulin response, sensitivity response. Um, you can also supplement with berberin while you're doing the lean gaining phase, which I would recommend. Supplementing with something like berberin has been shown in studies to work just as good as uh, metformin, which is diabetic medication. So it's going to help insulin sensitivity. It's going to help calorie partitioning. Um, it's the best form of glucose disposal agent, in my opinion. Um, I think that's the best approach, man. I think short bulk for one or two weeks is just, I just don't think, I don't, I don't see that being very beneficial. I don't think it's long enough. Amanda Sugan, a question about water intake. I am 115 pounds and drink 2.5 to 3 liters of water per day. Usually water intake is based on half your weight in ounces, but I have two questions. One, can decaf herbal tea count as water intake? Yes. Fluid is fluid. If I am, and they've even shown this with caffeinated, it's like we actually do extract more water than people would assume, um, even though caffeine is a diuretic. If I am having a tough day slash I am bored at work, I usually drink more cups of black or caffeinated teas. Should I up my water intake on those days? I don't drink coffee. But, oh, cups of black or caffeinated teas. I was like, you just said you drink black coffee. Um, I got you, black tea. Does it all just boil down to the pee test? Yeah, I think the pee test is the best route to take. Um, your pee should be tinted yellow. It shouldn't be bright yellow, and it shouldn't be crystal clear. Um, that's the best way to do it. But I would say, if, like, the reality is if you're drinking 2.5 to 3 liters per day and you're only 115 pounds, that's more than enough. That's, that's like a gallon, isn't it? Like, I want to say it's a gallon. How much is a gallon of water? Gallon to liters is 3.7 liters. So you're just below a gallon. Um, I think you're drinking plenty of water. So I would say like, I would like one to two cups of, uh, tea, like tea with de decaf, anything will count towards it. Like, um, and then if you're drinking caffeinated stuff, one is fine to count towards it. But if you go over one, I probably wouldn't like the reality is, is the water intake from coffee, even with caffeine, it does contribute to your total fluid intake, it does have a diuretic. So studies show that it actually does impact your fluid intake and keep you hydrated. So you can get hydrated from caffeinated beverages. It just also makes you pee longer. So I would argue that, or pee more often. So I would argue that the diuretic effect could possibly flush more water out as well. So even though it is supplementing to your hydration level, it possibly isn't as great as pure water. But I think 2.5 to 3 liters of water is plenty for you. So I wouldn't worry about this. And, and I do think the P test is the best example or the best strategy to go with. Kim Barnes Fitness. How do you know when and what to change your macros to? So, hmm, how do I want to approach this? It's very individual. I'll say that. Um, I drink some of my caffeinated coffee, black with a spoon of stevia. I think... The best way to approach this is basically say like when you uh, like when something's not working and it hasn't been working for longer than two weeks, you can consider changing macros. So basically like if you're plateaued and it's been longer than two weeks. So basically if, if you come to me and you're like I'm at a plateau and it's been one week, you're not adjusting. If it's been two weeks, we can consider adjusting. Three weeks, we're definitely adjusting unless we 
just started working together. So when somebody comes on board and I set their macros, I set their nutrition, we start working, I'm not adjusting for the first month even if you don't lose weight in most cases. Some cases I am. If, if I didn't adjust, like if you come on board, you're already tracking macros, you're already super diligent, and you come to me in a plateau and that's what I'm doing, it's a different story. But for most people, are like, hey, I'm ready to dial my nutrition in. I'm ready to take this to the next level. Those individuals, I might not adjust for the first three to four weeks because I think we'll be able to break through a plateau by creating consistency, not going into a deficit, but looking at habits, looking at meal time, looking at nutrient time, looking at food quality, looking at your accuracy of your measurements in your metrics and your calories and stuff like that um, before I do anything. Um, with that being said, if you have been at a plateau for two to three weeks, you can consider changing macros if all of those other bases are checked. So if you're like, hey, I've been plateaued for two and a half weeks, I think I need to tweak something, I'm going to go, okay, cool, let's look at your food first. Okay, are you balancing nutrition? Are you getting protein every meal? Or are you bulking it in one part of the day? Are you actually hitting your macros? Like, as in, are your measurements accurate? Studies show, like research reviews will show and, and meta-analysis will show when they pool a bunch of studies of like people tracking their diet, the percentage of people who are miscalculating their macros is insane. So it's common. A lot of people do it. And it's okay, but there's a lot of food options. There's a lot of ways to measure. There's a lot of mismeasurements happening. There's a lot of things slipping into your diet that you forget about. We have to check off all those boxes first before we adjust macros. We have to look at stress. We have to look at sleep. We have to consider your training. We have to look at your supplementation. Um, is it off? Is it on? Is it being tracked if they have calories in it? Um, so there's a lot of things, water intake, food quality. Are you getting your micronutrients and your fiber and enough greens and enough fruit and things like that? So I will go down like a series, uh, almost like a checklist, like a series of events before I adjust any macros. Because the reality is, is like, why would I drop your macros down or, or create a bigger caloric deficit if I know you will see better progress by increasing fiber, eating more veggies, having some more fruit, drinking more water, sleeping better? Like, Anything I can do to improve your results without dropping your calories, you bet your ass I'm doing it. So when you should track your macro or tweak your macros is when two to three weeks has gone by and you have not seen any progress on the scale or in the mirror or whatever, um, on your measurements, I should say. Because if the scale isn't going down, but your measurements are improving, or if the scale is not going down, but you look better in the mirror clearly, don't adjust your macros. But let's say you're plateaued, that you're truly plateaued with your weight and your aesthetic appearance. If two to three weeks has gone by and you can check off all the boxes saying that you're getting your fruits and vegetables, you're spreading your meals out properly, you're getting protein every meal, you're training hard, you're sleeping good. If you can check off all those boxes, at that point, you can change your macros. When you change your macros, um, what to change your macros to is so individual, I cannot answer that for you, Kim. Because the reality is, is I could say adjust anywhere between 5 to 10% because you could make a 5 to 10% drop in calories via fats or carbs or a combination of both. So take your total caloric intake and drop by either 5, 7.5, or 10% of your calories and drop that via carbs or fat, whatever you can adhere better to, or a combination of both if that works easier. That would be a good answer. That would be a general answer. But the reality is, is for some people, I might need to leave calories the same, bump protein up, drop carbs. I might need to flip carbs and fats around. So keep macros, calories the same, but go high fat, low carb, low carb, high fat, one of the two. I might need to add a diet break in. I might say, hey, like you're plateaued for two weeks, but I'm not going to drop calories on you. I'm going to give you three days of free feeding and then we're going to get back to it. And then after a week later, boom, you're dropping. So it's so individual, I can't tell you. What I will say is you know you need to adjust something in general 
when your body is adapting to it, you're, you're plateaued, you're not moving forward, and you can check off all those boxes. I think that's the biggest takeaway here. Sierra Clemens. What are the negative side effects of cannabis, if any, for an avid lifter? So I will, the way I want to approach this one, and I want to put some context in this, I am a completely neutral opinion. I, I don't smoke marijuana. Um, I don't do any edibles. Um, I have tested with uh, CBD, um, and I've definitely used marijuana before. I'm not saying that I've never used marijuana, but I don't currently use marijuana, and I haven't in years. Um, that's just not my thing. Uh, but I have played with CBD. Um, I'm mixed on CBD. It's one of those things where I start taking it, and I'm like, damn, I am sleeping better. Man, my anxiety is better. And then I run out, and I forget to take it, and two weeks go by, and I'm like, oh, it's still better. So maybe nothing happens. <laughs> so it's hard to say. And, and, and studies are very, like, wishy-washy. I feel like they're not 100% good. Um, Stronger by Science did an episode. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Uh, man, I'm getting all the fucking show notes and shout-outs today. Uh, but they did an episode reviewing some CBD studies, and I thought it was very informative. Um but most of them are inconclusive. They don't really say if it's really that good or not. But I am neutral because um, I know plenty of people in my life that use marijuana and they're great people and they're motivated and they're successful. Like I don't have any issue with it. Um, studies show really good effects. Um, they've even had some like ones with Crohn's disease individuals, individuals with Crohn's disease using marijuana and going into remission. So there's there's a lot of positives of marijuana. It's actually, like, besides the carcinogens of actually inhaling smoke, especially with, uh, like, papers and stuff, it's a really positive thing. Like, weed is really good for you, the reality. However, there is a temporary testosterone drop. I'm not aware of any other hormones dropping, but I am aware of testosterone. It's very much so temporary. Um, and the positive benefits seem to outweigh it. There's a lot of people who see great results. A good example, Wiz Khalifa has put on like 30 to 40 pounds of muscle in the last one to two years. Um, I saw him on stage when I was in Vegas just a month ago. He was jacked. Like he looked huge compared to the last time I saw him, which I saw him when I was like 17. Was like, damn, that was a long time ago. And he was like a twig. He wasn't even signed by a label yet, but he was like a twig. And he just started working out like a year ago. I heard him talking about it on Joe Rogan. He's built a lot of muscle and he smokes every day before and after. So it's not, he's probably during. Um, so it's obviously not a big enough effect. And we know that testosterone doesn't actually play, unless you're going to physiological levels um, to an extreme, it doesn't play a huge role in muscle growth, uh, really. Um, does it help build muscle? Of course. But like you have to inject and bring your testosterone levels up significantly in order to see positive effects from muscle growth, which is why steroids actually work, um, or testosterone replacement. But usually when testosterone replacement allows somebody to go from skinny to jacked or like build a lot of muscle, it's because they were so abnormally deficient that it's a huge increase. Like the gap between side, uh, T levels is huge. So there is a, a temporary, um, and it's temporary just like drinking beer is, has a temporary effect on testosterone. It's not long-lasting. Uh, I want to say it's within 24 hours you're back to normal levels. So it's not something that's going to considerably hurt gains unless you're smoking every single day. So if you're smoking weed every single day, constantly having THC in your body, I do think it can have a negative effect on testosterone, which could have a negative effect on recovery and muscle growth specifically for men, not that that doesn't affect women, but more so for men. Um, if it's a non, uh, it's a very occasional, non-frequent thing, I don't think it's going to have a big issue. Um, I know it also lowers inhibition and focus 
um, some people listening to this will be like, no, man, hell no, dude, it doesn't do that. <laughs> and they'll argue with me. Uh, but it does. There's been studies. And, uh, and that's okay. I mean, it's the reality. I'm not arguing against it, but do it at night when you're just going to bed. And it doesn't mess with your work. But the point with that being is if you're constantly doing it or you're doing it before a lift, it's probably going to have a negative effect because you will not be able to lift as much weight um, under the influence of marijuana. You probably won't have as much clarity or focus. Um, or maybe you will have more focus. I've heard people argue that they actually get a better mind-muscle connection when they're uh, high, but they can't lift as heavy. Um, so there's kind of that trade-off. Jeff Nipper did a very good video on this. I guess I'm going to have to link that shit too. Man, I wish these guys knew that I was shouting them out like crazy. Um, but he did a good video on, uh, with a guy who's jacked, who smokes and, and lifts. And he did kind of like a little science review on it. The reality is there's just not that many good studies that prove it's very bad. And there's not that many studies that prove it's really good. So it's very neutral. I don't think it's a huge issue. I think the only side effect would be performance drops. So it's important not to do it within a certain time frame before training. Um, there is some inhibition. So if you were trying to follow a diet, it might be tougher to follow that diet um, and it might lower your focus or your ability to perform in other daily activities. But as a health parameter, besides the carcinogens, which is purely dependent on how you're consuming it, I don't think it's a huge negative. All right, we got one more question. More Chia, please. What do you do when you fall off of your diet? Do you drop calories the next day, fast, etc., or just get back to normal? So this is actually a very, very paraphrased. She sent me a very long and personal uh, DM asking me a question, giving me her exact situation. And it sounds like she dropped calories in order to do a mini cut before going on a family event. She went on the family event. She overate. She came home. She overate again. And now she's trying to rebound because she did gain some weight from it. And she's scared about the scale staying up. I just want to give my quick thoughts on this. I think there are two scenarios, uh, that we need to cover. The first one being when it is okay to fast or drop calories. So there's a term that I stole from Eric Helms, uh, who I steal a lot of terms from because he's a genius and he started a lot of good things in the industry, but he, he called it Rob Peter to pay Paul. I don't think he invented Rob Peter, Peter to pay Paul, but in the, in the context of calorie uh, shifting, he did. And this is basically where like tonight I am going to have like a glass of wine, a big steak, and a bunch of butter on a potato or whatever, right? It's going to be way high calorie. It's going to be over my fat intake. That's okay because yesterday I dropped my fats by 20 grams in order to make room for it today. That's called robbing Peter to pay Paul. If I do that every once in a while, I don't see any issue with it. If it's not creating a negative relationship with food, I don't see any issue in it. Um, I didn't binge the next day. I got right back on point. It didn't happen for another couple weeks. Um, if I had a glass of wine, I dropped some fat for the wine, things like that. Like if it's a healthy relationship and you're keeping it within the context of weekly adjustments and you're keeping your weekly caloric intake in balance and you're making sure not to adjust by more than 20% of total calories, meaning I'm not pulling half of my calories one day or for three days, let's say, so that I can have an extra 4,000 calories to eat a full pizza by myself on Saturday. If you're not doing things like that, I think it's totally fine. Um, and I think it's productive. It can help and it can actually create more flexibility because part of flexible dieting is not just in the daily context, but in the weekly context. It's when it gets too repetitive, which is the second situation, when it gets too repetitive, too uh, extreme, taking huge amounts of calories out to fit huge amount of calories in, 
or it's causing binge episodes. So I don't know if this is what happened with you specifically, but in the sense like let's say that you did come back from the vacation and you said screw it and then you ate more or you binged on the vacation, stuff like that. That's where I say do not drop calories. Don't, don't fast. Go back to your normal caloric intake. Don't weigh yourself. Chase health. Chase health. Chase performance in the gym. Focus on the mindset behind what you're doing. Get a coach and really prioritize how you were going about this whole thing. Because I think flexible dieting is a great thing. It's a great tool. But if we take it out of hand and it's creating a, creating a very negative mindset and a very poor relationship with food, that's where we run into issues. And that's where I think it is not okay to rob Peter to pay Paul. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is a very good strategy to be more flexible with your diet, but it cannot be taken to extremes in any way, shape, or form. That's where I see people uh, going with like, that's when like fat uh, overshooting happens. Like you go on a diet, you lose weight, and then you gain a bunch of weight afterwards and you cannot lose it. That's, that's the kind of behavior that leads to um, a 95% rate of people regaining weight after a diet, which is real. So the best way to avoid that is, again, have a coach, focus on mindset, don't weigh in, focus on health, like get yourself healthy mentally and uh, in your body physically healthy and performing well, and then focus on that. Just go back to your calories, right? Like, and even if you did fall off, like, fuck it, it's one day, one week. That's not going to create re- maximum regression, just like one week of perfect dieting isn't going to create maximum progression. So we got to remember the long term and just focus on that. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.